gotta pay the tab. You, you gotta, gotta pay, pay the, the tab. tab. Hi, I'm Tony Tolbert. And I'm Adam Burdinsky. Welcome to Pay the Tab, where we make the case for reparations, one story at a time. Each episode, we expose the story of racial injustice. Then we explore creative ways to make it right. It's been long enough, America. It's time to pay the tab. You know, when we talk about doing reparations, the process can seem kind of overwhelming, right? Like, first, how are you going to mm-hmm. convince enough people that it's the right thing to do and, you know, actually get the votes to, to yeah. get stuff passed into law? And then, you know, not to mention, how does the program actually work, right? How do you lay out what exactly uh, needs to be done and how much you're going to pay people and, and what the different kind of changes look like, right? It seems yeah. pretty overwhelming. Yeah, you know, it does seem overwhelming, um, like even just where to get started. Uh, but Shazam, uh, that's what the California Reparations Task Force has already done. Hmm. They've done this, did a bunch of research, and have put together a masterpiece of a report that lays out the full history of America's crimes against black people from slavery to today. And then they you know, moved ahead and created an actual plan for how to make reparations happen. And it's exciting because it, you know, it cuts across the full scope of black life, from employment to housing, mm-hmm. education, healthcare, criminal justice. Honestly, I don't know if folks realize what a big deal uh, this is, but it's it's truly historic. Yeah, this this report is really incredible. It's it's the first time that we know of that anybody has actually sat down and laid this stuff out. Right, the the full history of America's atrocities against black people and the anybody. effects. Right, anybody, yeah. and 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 then what to do about it, right? Like a, a, a comprehensive, confident plan that's laid out that yep. is now in motion. So, okay, so what happens next? You know, when does California start getting some actual laws to make reparations? And most importantly, you know, when do they start cutting the checks? Yeah, that's the uh, billion-dollar question, right? So by July uh, 2023, the task force will submit a final set of recommendations to the legislature for rep- reparations across all the areas that they've studied. Um, and in, in the interim, they will be conducting more research, doing some listening sessions, some hearings, mm-hmm. and putting a price tag on the dollar amount, financial reparations owed by the state of California to black yeah, folks. Crunching those numbers. Crunching numbers and coming up with some, some cash, right? Cut some checks and put some dollars in people's pockets. So we have the perfect guest today to dive into what the task force is doing, and that's the chairperson, Camila Moore. Yeah, so Camila's going to tell us a whole bunch of stuff, starting with the myth of California being a so-called free state. Right, and she's also going to go into who's going to be eligible for reparations. There's mm-hmm. a big debate, right, among uh, people saying it should be lineage-based, only people who are descended from enslaved people versus right. race-based, and maybe all African Americans. So we're going to get into that with her. You know, another point that Camila's going to be taking us through is how um, there's been a through line from mm-hmm. slavery times to, to now of black people being criminalized and black life being criminalized um, and how deep that runs in our, in our society's history. Camila Moore is a reparations scholar and she's also an entertainment attorney. She's the chair of the California reparations task force. As we mentioned, the first of its kind in the country. She has a BA in political science from UCLA and a law degree from Columbia. Also a master of laws degree in international criminal law from the university of Amsterdam. Camila Moore, welcome to Pay the Tab. Thank you for joining us today. We know that this is an especially busy stretch for you, 
So we're grateful for you sharing some time with us. Thank you for having me. First off, um, congratulations on the release of the task force initial report. I mean, that's like, what can we say? The report is truly amazing. And it's somewhat shocking the amount of ground that you all covered in a relatively short period of time. So the report does a really thorough job of laying out the history of America's crimes against black people. Why is it important to present all this to the public when we're talking about reparations? Well, for one, to start with California, I think there's this dominant narrative out there that California was a free sl- a free state or had nothing to do with slavery. Um, and I think this task force um, and our work has completely disrupted that narrative. Although California entered the union as a free state in 1850, um, that was truly only a name. We learned through our research that there were about a little bit over 1,500 Black people who were enslaved in California. Um, Not only that, two years after California was admitted to the Union as a free state, in 1852, California state legislature actually enacted a Fugitive Slave Act. Mm -hmm. There was a man named Robert Perkins. He uh, was brought to California with his white enslaver to mine for gold. He found out that California was a free state, and, you know, he escaped. He escaped alongside two other black men. They ended up creating their own gold mining enterprise. However, in 1852, when the California state legislature enacted that Fugitive Slave Act, Robert Perkins and those two other black men that um, he worked with were actually rounded up and deported back to the Deep South to become re-enslaved. And so there are many stories like that in California history where it really shows and demonstrates that California was not, in fact, a free state, and it was truly only a name. So it seems pretty important that a whole lot of us need to be more educated, right, about America's and California's racist systems, how they've worked in the past and how they continue to operate uh, in order to mobilize support for reparations, right? Yes, absolutely. And I've been saying, and I hope that people utilize this 500-page interim report, not only you know, as an organizing tool where they're advocating for reparations on the local um, state and federal level, but they primarily use this report as an educational tool, um, as an awareness tool where we can, you know, learn about California's role in maintaining slavery um, um, with your friends, with your families, with your professional networks. Um, I hope that, you know, this report is socialized in that way. So each chapter of the report breaks down injustices that occurred in California, um, specifically and across the country as a whole. Why is it critical to examine both? Well, it's critical to examine both to really demonstrate to the reader how the federal government was also complicit and primarily responsible in maintaining the institution of slavery um, and the afterlife of slavery. There's actually a provision in the bill that talks about how In the event that Black Californians do receive reparations, essentially the federal government is not off the hook. Let's talk a little about the subject of who's eligible for reparations. Uh, We heard there was a lot of debate uh, in the task force over who should be eligible. As we understand it, there were two main approaches, uh, one lineage-based, right, where it's uh, descendants of enslaved people, and the other one race-based, which is more broadly, right, like all African-Americans of, of different backgrounds. Uh, we wanted to, to ask you a little bit about that and um, m- maybe start off with, like, what were the best arguments that you heard for each of those two approaches? 
Yes. So I'll start with the race-based argument. I think the best argument um, for race-based reparations proponents were, you know, all Black people in some way um, suffer from systemic racism or discrimination, which is which is true, right? Um, but we were also presented with the question of how do you structure a reparations program that is the most likely to be upheld by the courts? Erwin Chemerinsky, who's the uh, dean of UC Berkeley Law School, he essentially helped us um, come to our decision to support lineage-based reparations when he essentially stated, you know, this argument that all Black people suffer from systemic discrimination you know, may not be the most convincing uh, to the courts. And so he actually suggested that the task force opt for a lineage-based program. So reparations would be for, you know, descendants of slaves rather than all Black people. And I was a part of the majority to vote for lineage-based reparations uh, for a variety of reasons. The history of reparations advocacy in the United States has always been lineage-based. People like Belinda Sutton, who uh, was an enslaved woman who was one of the first enslaved people to actually petition petition her former enslaver for reparations. Uh, you mm -hmm. also have people like Queen Mother Ollie Moore, who uh, coined the term descendants of American slaves in 1962. You have the Black Panther Party, who in their third point in their 10-point platform, uh, called for reparations, mm -hmm. essentially calling for 40 acres and two mules, not just one, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> inflation, but just on a on a legal perspective, the question was, you know, how do you structure a reparations program that's most likely to be upheld by the courts? And the task force decided to structure it in a way that is race neutral, uh, because we want this this task force and the re recommendations that come out of it to be successful. We want um, these recommendations to actually be implemented so they can change the material lives of people. You know, some people are wondering, how is this going to work in the real world, right? How how can people find out and prove that they're descended from an enslaved person? Do you all have a plan yet on how that would work? Or what do you think is the best approach? Yes. So we also invited to provide expert testimony to the task force, six certified um, professional genealogists who spoke to the question around, you know, the feasibility because... Mm. Our ancestors were slaves. They were property. Uh, when they were enslaved, they were literally just numbers. They didn't have names mm. on the slave schedules until the 1870 census. So, you know, in, in genealogy, there's a term called the 1870 brick wall, where it's hard for Black Americans to trace their lineage before 1870 because our ancestors were listed as just pure numbers on the slave schedules. We are advocating for a California African-American Freedmen Agency, which would be an institution um, that would primarily be responsible for dispensing the reparations once implemented. But within that office, it would also be an office of genealogy where um, professional certified genealogists would be hired on uh, to assist the most vulnerable populations within the African-American community um, demonstrate their eligibility for reparations. Because the idea is, right, the burden of proof of coming up with whether you're a descendant or not shouldn't necessarily be on the individual. Mm -hmm. It truly should be on the yeah. state. The burden should be on the state in acknowledgement of the harm done to the community. Um, and then also the state um, 
right, providing those types of genealogical resources to the African-American community in and of itself, I argue, is a form of reparations under Mm -hmm. international law, particularly um, a a form of reparations under restitution. It gets to um, the point of how do you make a victim whole, right? Maybe the state should help uh, reconnect them to their Mm -hmm. family, Mm -hmm. to their Mm -hmm. friends who were separated by virtue of state or government action, that being the institution of slavery. Well, Can I ask you something real quick just to follow up? Because I think a lot of people might be really interested in how this genealogy stuff could work. Because you talked about the, the brick wall of 1870, right? And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like in, in your own family situation or any others that you may know about, are there things that you were able to do to go you know, beyond that brick wall and, and, and get information? Well, on my mother's side, um, I think it's because my mother's ancestors were enslaved in the deep, deep South. And if you know um, the history of the domestic slave trade in this country, right? The majority of African-Americans who live in the deep South more than likely were victims of the domestic slave trade. So that meant that they might've had ancestors who were enslaved in the upper South, but then they were separated from their families and then, um, deported or transported to the deep South to be mm-hmm. enslaved. So it's a lot of family separation mm. when it comes uh, when it comes down to African Americans who are from the deep South. And my family, from my mother's side, from Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, and Louisiana, all deep Southern states. And so on my mother's side of the family, you know, we're we're still trying to figure out our ancestry. I, I don't think we've gotten to the 1870. I think we've gotten to the 1900. Uh, but on my father's side of the family, it's a bit different. Um, and they just were able to keep really good records. And so that's how I was able to find out that on my father's side of my family, um, they were enslaved on the Whitney Plantation, which is a hmm. famous plantation. Yeah. So my my people on my mother's side are from Arkansas. My dad's side from Louisiana. Um, I actually did a, a, a genealogy project in high school. And I, for the life of me, I cannot put my hands on that bad boy. So I'm... I'm Tearing up my closets to, to, to find that. Um, so I don't want there to be any any excuse, you know. Um, that's, that's a personal side. So you mentioned the preliminary recommendations. Uh, let's let's turn our attention to that. There's so much there. Obviously, we can't, you know, cover, you know, a lot of it. But um, so many great ideas on how to actually start to repair the harms, right? You know, want to ask you if there are any specific recommendations that you'd like to discuss. Like, is there one that most resonates with you as especially important or impactful? I think having an institution like, you know, the California African-American agency, um, I think would be the most impactful because it gets to, you know, the the structural racism. And as a recommendation, you know, that type of agency is a literal structure Mm -hmm. that African-Americans can go to for resources that just doesn't exist today. There's Mm -hmm. no institution like... For instance, the Office of Tribal Affairs or the Office of Immigrant Affairs. There's literally no institution that's particularly catered to um, the descendants of chattel slavery. So the report calls out the criminal justice system, right, in the prison industrial complex for what they are, right? Over-policing of black neighborhoods, um, hyper-criminalization of black people, forced prison labor, you know, go on and on. Um, So just, you know, three lawyers here looking at our legal system as a whole. Do you see a through line from American slavery to the present day. Yes, absolutely. And that's some of our, that's the key findings that we 
uh, made in the report and that the criminalization of African-Americans um, started with the institution of slavery itself. Um, and we've been criminalized as a community um, as a form of social control, particularly after emancipation. You know, what do you do with you know, all these Black people who are no longer deemed as property? Um, what do you do with them? Do you integrate them fully into society or do you try to control them? Right. And so criminalization was one of those ways um, that local, state and, and the federal government uh, utilized to control us and to exploit mm-hmm. our, our labor um, in similar ways that they did while we were enslaved. Criminalization itself is a badge and incident of slavery that has been weaponized against the African-American community with chain gangs, mm-hmm. with um, just the over-policing of Black life, like with vagrancy laws. Um, but then in the more contemporary, right, you have the over-policing of Black neighborhoods, of Black predominant schools, mm-hmm. um, which has manifested to impact our children, where we have even named, you know, the phenomenon of the school-to-prison pipeline. And so, yes, you know, there is a through line from slavery to the Black codes and the the, the mm-hmm. policies that define that to mass incarceration, school-to-prison pipeline. Um, absolutely, criminalization has been weaponized. Like Tony said, we really want to say hats off because these recommendations you guys have are are bold. They're comprehensive. You know, they're they're covering so many different areas. You d- you guys do also have a straight up reparations plank uh, in chapter twelve where you talk about the wealth gap. We're just kind of wondering, like, what do you see? Let's say a couple of years from now, when this has been put into place, and you know the California legislature has has adopted some of these things into law. What does the reparations process look like? We've decided as a task force that you know, California should compensate the descendant community for state-specific harms. And we've already started to outline some of those harms, like um, housing discrimination uh, via redlining or um, you know, mass incarceration, houselessness. Um, those are some of the few harms that we've already started to identify and instruct our economic consultant team to start gathering data uh, so that they can start crunching the numbers. But essentially, this California African-American agency, right, would be responsible for confirming the eligibility for descendants. And then once eligibility is, is confirmed, right, they would also be responsible for dispensing compensation for the state-specific harms. Um, and then, of course, dispensing reparations, not only in the form of compensation, but also in the other four forms of reparations under international law, that being rehabilitation. So that could look like free legal services, free social services, free health care related services to restitution. So that accounts for stolen land, stolen property, stolen intellectual property as well uh, to satisfaction, which is, you know, more symbolic forms of reparations and lastly, guarantees of non-repetition. So some people say reparations should only be addressed at the national level and that individual states and cities shouldn't mess with it, right? Just stay out of it because it's such an important issue and that could potentially interfere with a national program. How do you respond to that? I acknowledge the argument, but at the same time, I reject that argument Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, the federal government is primarily responsible, but, you know, there's we can't deny the history. We can't deny the facts and the Mm -hmm. facts and the history lead us 
um, to the correct assertion that you know, local governments and state governments have also been complicit in perpetuating atrocities to the African-American community. So what do you do? Do you leave them off the hook and just wait for the federal government? No, because mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're still waiting. Could be waiting a while. Yeah. Yeah. What can our listeners do if they want to help out, right? If they want to help your process and especially, you know, as we get closer to next year um, to help these, uh, these proposals become law and, and, and put this into uh, concrete reality, what, what, what are some things that folks can do? Yes. So folks can follow our website at oag.ca.gov forward slash AB3121. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Camila V. Moore. And you can also email the task force at reparationstaskforce at doj.ca.gov. Camila Moore, thank you for spending some time with us. We really, really appreciate it. We're grateful for all the wonderful work that you and the task force are doing. We applaud you. We support you. We are rooting for you. And if there's any way that we can be of help, please don't hesitate to call on us. Uh, But really, just a wonderful time for us to have you in our presence and to be in your presence. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time and thank you for what you're doing for for our society. Seriously, this is history and uh, it's it's very exciting. Thank you so much for having me both. Absolutely. And it's very cool to see a, a, a young person doing, you know, doing their no thing and, and leading the charge. So go on with your bad self. That was a whole lot, right? Yeah, a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Camila definitely brought, brought some thunder and helped break it down. Certainly one issue we want to come back to is um, the question of eligibility, right? So as Camila mentioned, there are two main approaches that the task force considered. One is the lineage approach, which uh, requires um, someone to prove that they are a descendant of enslaved people. And the other is a so-called race-based approach, which would include all black Americans. Yeah. Um, The task force in a very close, hotly contested five (laughs) to four vote. Yeah. Um, went with the lineage approach, and there's some reasons rooted in, in in the law that argue in favor of that particular approach. Adam, you want to break that down? Sure. One thing she mentioned as far as the lineage approach to who's eligible is that it might be more likely to hold up in court. Everything has to be completely race neutral, and anything that that mentions race is held to a super tough standard. So she basically said they think it has a much better chance if it's based on you know, people who are descendants of enslaved people rather than a particular race. So when we were talking about who's going to be eligible for reparations, you know, one of the issues is proving up, right? How, how can people mm-hmm. prove that they are descended from an enslaved person? And, you know, one thought we had was because of our country's racist immigration laws, I'm pretty sure that prior to 1960, at least, there were very, very few um, African-Americans whose ancestors emigrated here voluntarily, right? That, that there, there were some, but but very, very small numbers. And, you know, the overwhelming majority of African-Americans who have ancestors that were here before 1960 are descended from an enslaved person, right? Absolutely. That That's my understanding as well. You know, I don't have the exact percentage, but but overwhelming majority. Right. So so one way to do the eligibility would be to say, you know, if you can prove that much, if you can prove that you had people here before 1960, you're mm-hmm. in, right? And just, uh, just o- and, automatically. Yeah, exactly. And and that right. that's uh, a lot easier to prove, uh, you know, than 
than tracing the family tree so much further back, especially like, you know, Camila was saying, there's this brick wall and, and pr- proving is just so, so difficult. And truth be told, uh, at least the way I feel about this, some might, might disagree, but even if, uh, you know, a, a few handful of quote unquote other black folk who, you know, do not descend from enslaved people slip in and, and get, get a check too, I'm, I, I wouldn't be mad about that. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's the other side of the debate, right, is a, a lot of people feel that all reparations should be given out more broadly. But, uh, but yeah, it's not, it's not the biggest uh, travesty in the world if uh, some people who are facing racism today um, get in on this program that is maybe intended for a more narrow group. But I, I still think, you know, to, to the points that Camila raised, having a genealogy branch of the Freedmen's you know, Bureau um, to assist people in, you know, tracking that information would yes. be a, an important piece. Yeah, there are so many amazing ideas in this list they have here, and we don't know which ones are going to eventually make it to the legislature and get passed into law. But just mm-hmm. for discussion, there's some really cool stuff in here. There's, they talk about a long-term truth and reconciliation commission, right? To, Someone like the South African model, huh? Yeah, exactly. To to keep us uh, honest and examining our our society publicly, they talk about free college tuition. Mm-hmm. They talk about a fund to support development of black-owned businesses. Yes. You know, compensation for families who were removed from their homes by state action, such as uh, highway construction. Um, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Really, really great stuff. So there's a, there's a momentum. There's a movement. There are serious conversations taking place, um, not just in California, but across the country, right? So there are several other states that um, have, e- have either considered or are in the process of considering some form of a reparations plan, uh, New York, Oregon, Maryland, New Jersey, uh, and a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the local level, there are a handful of cities that have also um, delved into this or are digging into it. Um, so there, there, is, there is a movement, there's a momentum that's, that's happening. Um, and, you know, we're excited to be to be a part of that and to share this information with listeners so that we can move in that direction together. Exactly. So that task force is going to be busy over the next year. As Camila said, they're going to yep. be holding hearings. They're going to be putting this together into final form and bringing some recommendations to the desk of the California legislature for some laws to, yes. get, to get going. Yeah, this is very exciting and something we will definitely be keeping an eye on. So, Tony, what can our listeners do who want to help move this process forward? Well, the first thing, you know, people need to do is check out the report. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it reads like the ultimate history book for all of us, irrespective of background, irrespective of perspective. It's must, must read, right? Um, and as Camila mentioned, there are ways to use the report as both an organizing tool and an educational tool. Teachers out there, you know, include this in your curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're part of a book club, you know, recommend this as one of the readings. Um, if you're involved in a faith group, you know, um, bring this to your group. Yeah, and this is a beautifully put together document. You know, they have uh, pictures and illustrations and charts, and and it really is compelling, and it does read like a riveting book. It is not like the history books that, that we grew up studying in school, that's for sure. Definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, you know, the other, other thing to keep in mind for those who want to get involved with um, some direct action is— uh, the, the task force will be holding a series of public hearings and community listening sessions in various parts of the state. Uh, make sure that you're, you know, you subscribe to the task force uh, email list, get, you know, get on their radar so you know when there's going to be something happening in your area. Yeah, all great ideas. And we will have all this stuff in our show notes, folks. We're going to have the 
report itself will have a link to this amazing document. And then also, as Tony said, uh, links and ways that people can follow the task force and keep up on what's been uh, going on and, and possibly get involved directly. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us on Pay the Tab. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please subscribe to our podcast. And if you like what we're putting down, share it with your family and friends. And please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is the best way you can help us to get the word out with this show. So please check that out and give us some love. Thanks for listening. Keep coming back to Pay the Tab. It's time to pay, pay the dab.